Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala, and today um, I am happy to be discussing uh, a very interesting topic, which we'll get into in just a few moments. Um, but I do think that this episode will prove uh, useful for a lot of folks who are interested um, in uh, both of the topics of Molinism and uh, open theism. Uh, for those who know a little bit about my own theological journey, um, I did some... Um, hopscotching between different perspectives. I was I was never an open theist, uh, which we'll define and, and explain for those who, when when they start listening, maybe they don't know what open theism is, but um, I never entertained that view. But um, I I was a Molinist for, for, for some time, a short while, okay? So I grew up in a Pentecostal Arminian context. Then uh, when I became, you know, when I was a little bit older and kind of got into some some more theology, a little bit more intentionally, um, I became a Calvinist. And then when I was a Calvinist for quite some time, um, I was introduced uh, to the topic of Molinism. And through reading uh, Kenneth Keatley's book, Salvation and Sovereignty, um, that book really made me question my Calvinism um, and explore this idea of Molinism. And what I appreciated about um, Keatley's book is that um, he presented a, a version of Molinism alongside Calvinism. And so this was really something that, that was important to me. I didn't want to just learn about Molinism because I was so convinced of Calvinism. I wanted to see them side by side. Well, how would a Molinist address this concern, that concern, and this concern? And so um, Dr. Keithley in his book um, argued quite convincingly, for, uh, you know, at least to, to my satisfaction. And so when I read that book, I kind of converted uh, to Molinism for a little while and argued for it quite convincingly. I, I uh, was talking to a couple of my Calvinist friends and got them thinking, uh, but through more study conversations with folks, you know, I've had some great conversations with, uh, with Tim Stratton, uh, over there at free. I have to get, I have to get this straight because Tyler's show, uh, Tyler Vela's show, uh, sounds very similar to Tim Stratton's show, the free thinker. Okay. Uh, Tim Stratton has the free thinking ministry. Okay. Um, I had some great conversations with, with him while I was a Molinist and then also when I was a Calvinist. So um, I also had a great discussion with Dr. Kirk McGregor, who is a fine uh, Molinist uh, scholar in general and, and a good defender of, of Molinism. Um, and so I had a good, you know, a fair share of the Molinist perspective. And, and at the end of the day, while I disagree, I do appreciate my Molinist uh, brothers. Uh, they're sharp guys and they definitely give us some food for thought. But ultimately, I came away with the idea that Molinism uh, doesn't do it for me. Uh, I don't think that it is uh, the position that is best um, defended scripturally. And so um, I was drawn to Calvinism, back to Calvinism, and I was quite convinced that it is what the Bible teaches. Now, of course, I know there are going to be people, obviously, are going to disagree and that's okay. Um, but that's where I was, that, that was my journey. So I'm really excited to talk a little bit about, you know, Molinism and then of course, open theism, which I think has real problems. And so we'll, we'll jump into that in, in just a moment. All right. Well, before I introduce uh, Tyler Vela and, and invite him on the screen with me, I, I do want to let folks know those who um, have been asking about my online uh, class that I teach on presuppositional apologetics. Um, uh, class starts on June 1st. So if you still want to sign up for Precept U, you can go to revealedapologetics.com and click on the menu Precept U, and it walks you through how you can RSVP a, um, a spot in the class. 
We'll be meeting once a week to discuss the content of the lectures, the PowerPoints, and the uh, outline. So um, you definitely you want to check that out. Um, I'm very happy with how the courses came out, and we've already uh, taught it um, a couple of months ago, and it, it turned out really well. And so I'm looking forward for more people to sign up. So there is that. Now, for those who are wondering, well, David Paulman, who is a, a Christian Arminian, uh, Definitely has lots to say about presuppositional apologetics. Those who are wondering if um, I will be doing a response to a video that he just put out. Well, I've actually invited my friend Chris Bolt, um, who is a fellow presuppositionalist, to um, to take a look at um, David Palman's main argumentation against presuppositional apologetics. And on June 3rd at 9 p.m. Eastern, um, we will be addressing uh, David Pullman's arguments there. And so hopefully that will be uh, that will prove helpful for folks who want to see how a presuppositionalist perspective might interact with um, the criticisms that that he raises. Lastly, on June 11th, I will be having Anthony Rogers on. If those of you guys who know who Anthony Rogers is, he's an excellent defender of the Trinity. Um, he, uh, he offers wonderful critiques of Islam. Um, I'm going to have Anthony Rogers on my show to discuss presuppositional apologetics applied to Islam. And this is kind of an interesting uh, topic. A lot of folks wonder, well, yeah, you, a presuppositionalist could argue with an atheist and that that works fine. But what happens when you come up against um, another theist? How does presuppositionalism um, interact with a view that has an absolute God, uh, you know, an apparent grounding for logical absolutes and morality, things like that. And so I'm really excited to get into that. That's going to be a June 11th. So I'll, I'll remind you guys as the upcoming shows come. I'll let, you, I'll let you guys know about that. All right. Well, all that out of the way, I want to invite uh, Tyler Vela on. How's it going, Tyler? Good. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. I'm so happy that you're here, man. Yeah. Happy, happy to be here. I don't, I don't, I don't have a cool library background. You're coming to from, you know, Casa <laughs> de Vela, the kitchen uh, that I have. Hey, that's where the magic happens. My library's in a back people. storage closet at church. So <laughs> that's where that's where the magic happens for a lot of people yes. in the kitchen. So yes. it's it's all good. Um, well, um, why don't you tell folks a little bit about yourself, um, very briefly, and then we, we'll jump right into this. I want folks to really get a lot out of this episode, and and whether you agree or disagree, um, that's okay. As long as you are thinking about these issues, and uh, you know that's a, that's a mission accomplished as I see it. So why don't you tell folks a little bit about yourself? Um, sure. I, I never know how long or what to say on these. Uh, I am the the host of the Freed Thinker podcast, uh, YouTube channel and blog, um, which really started as kind of a, you know, just kind of a labor of love coming out of my own background. Uh, I was an atheist until I was about 20 years old uh, when the Lord caught a hold of me and, and, uh, and brought me home. Um, and from, from kind of coming out of that naturalistic atheistic background, um, I became a Christian only about a year and a half, about, right about a year before 9-11, which is what spawned all the new atheists mm. um, writing. And so um, I was my, kind of like early formative years of, of growing in the Christian faith and um, reconciling, you know, I was a philosophy major and reconciling what I was learning in philosophy classes with my new Christian worldview and all that kind of stuff in the melting pot. Now you throw in the new atheists and there was a whole lot of stuff to, to read and talk about. And so uh, the Freed Thinker was born that way. It was actually started as just kind of a, 
uh, it actually started as logical theism. Um, I think someone has taken that since then. Um, but uh, so it really it largely focused on on dealing with atheism and, and naturalism and scientism and things like that. Uh, as I started going through um, another degree program at Moody in biblical studies and now my master's in biblical studies, uh, currently at, at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary, um, and uh, you know some some other kind of uh, studies and projects in my life. Um, it has turned into a labor of love in other ways, and I've kind of divided off. The podcast is now dedicated more towards in-house discussions, biblical theology, systematic theology, mm -hmm. kind of questions about like this. If I did a show like this, this would be on the podcast. We're really dealing with uh, theological things. It's not really evangelistic. Sure. Um, that kind of thing. Whereas the YouTube channel, really, that's where I'm dedicating all of my episodes to um, uh, questions about naturalism and burden of proof and, you know, uh, burden of justification. I did have a series on there on uh, my specific interpretation of Genesis 1, but only because that's hugely, uh, I, I think, apologetically valuable to have another position, basically saying like, hey, guys, stop having the conversation that way. Uh, so, um, so, you know, there's some things like that, but that's, that's really what the kind of two pronged approach of, uh, of the ministry has been. And then also recently, I'm not, I think, you know, this, but I'm not sure if you know this. Um, I also admin a page called Sage stage, um, yes. Sage stage is dedicated. There's, um, the way that the admins, uh, the way that we've set it up is I think very, very interesting. Um, the Calvinistic admins kind of police the Calvinists and the non-Calvinists police the non-Calvinists. And, and we, we kind of, we hold the hammer to our own sides. And a lot of times someone will get blocked and they'll be like, Oh, the other side's mad. And it's like, no, like I blocked you because you're being a jerk. Like, um, <laughs> so uh, we actually, so that that's been going for a while. And uh, one of the admins, uh, Randy Whitman Jr., uh, who I went to Moody with, who's a historic Arminian, um, he and I actually started, and some of the other admins will come on, but we started the Sage Stage uh, YouTube channel. So we've been doing, uh, we, we're now on, I think we finished episode three now, which is really, the whole point of it is just a discussion about how your theological position and kind of hermeneutical, uh, um, I want to say presumptions, but just the hermeneutical principles that you hold when you come to a text, mm -hmm. how it actually will determine um, or color the types of interpretations of passages that that you'll bring to it. So we go to these heavily disputed passages like James 2 and Hebrews 6 and and other ones and 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 we say okay, well, what are the different views and why do they come to that and is it, you know, what are the hermeneutical considerations and that that lead them to read them that way and all and all that kind of stuff. So and that's uh, called that's called sage Stage, stage, stage. The purpose is to uh, decageify de people from all sides. <laughs> okay, that's um, awesome. So, all right, well, very good. Thank you for that. I hope folks mm -hmm. uh, check that out. Um, well, let's provide some context. Um, if those of you uh, were um, intrigued by the thumbnail that I put out, yes, it was supposed to somewhat mimic uh, capturing Christianity's uh, color scheme. Okay, um, this episode really is inspired by some comments that uh, were floating around Facebook by Cameron Bertusi um, of Capturing Christianity, which, by the way, I highly recommend his channel. Um, yeah, there's some uh, disagreements I have with him, but. Um, you know, I consider him uh, a brother in Christ. I've greatly benefited from his his content. Um, I'm a subscriber, <laughs> okay? Um, but um, for those who have been following his ministry, he has been saying some things that I that I do find uh, concerning. And so this this episode is not to, 
you know, to, to call him a heretic or to make fun of like, well, you know, he's flirting with this, that, or the other thing. Really, this episode is, in, is inspired by the fact that the, the, the things that he posts with respect to, you know, Roman Catholicism or open theism, you know, being undecided between Molinism and open theism. I think some of the views that he seems to be, um, I guess, I don't want to use the word, but I guess flirting with, May I, can I use that word? I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't mean to sound pejorative, but the, the kind of the ideas that he seems to be kind of interacting with and kind of, you know, well, maybe, maybe I, maybe I'll consider this. That seems to be a little concerning to me. And so I do think that um, this, these topics are important to talk about. And I want to, I want to stick not on, um, on Cameron, but on the positions that he's talking about and talk about why it's important for us to know what these positions are and why, um, with respect to at least open theism, why we should avoid open theism. Whereas Molinism, uh, I, I agree with uh, Guillaume Bignon, the French uh, Calvinist philosopher. He says, Molinism is my favorite of the false views. So definitely not as, as, as bad, if I can use that word, as open theism, but it, it's got its issues too. And so we'll, we're going to talk about that here in this, in this episode. So hopefully we are going to do that with respect, but with uh, focus and content. And for those who are in the comments, um, try to keep the, the disagreements uh, respectful. Um, and if you have any questions, as I always do on my shows, uh, we will go through a bunch of these questions. As long as Tyler is awake and has energy, we'll go through as many as, as we possibly can. I want this to be kind of a like a super duper, you know, episode where people can kind of go to this episode and learn a lot. So hopefully, um, you know, we can do that here. All right. How does that sound? Does that sound okay? This is like right. this will be like this will be like the hardcore history episode, like the four and a half hour episode. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Well, what I've been doing is I've been taking small snippets of my past interviews. So um, I would definitely, if this episode goes long, I definitely want to take some snippets and and put them up as separate videos so people can kind of get you know right to the specific content that that they're interested in. So we we got to serve the people, man. Right? We got to give the people what they want. Give them what, <laughs> give them what they want. And and people want nothing more than five hour long YouTube videos. That, that's right. Well, you'll be surprised at the. <laughs> <laughs> is a weird world, right? People like, yeah, eh, five minutes, but theology, I mean, you got people will listen for a while. So at any rate, let's jump right into the issue. So I'm going to flip a coin. Okay. Uh, what would you like to cover first, Molinism or open theism? Well, let's, let's go with Molinism because um, I think it's the, it, it's, it's the one that we're going to be probably the, you know, the, the, the nicest with. Okay. Um, <laughs> so let, you know, let's, let's kind of get that, get that one out of the way. Okay, so so why don't you define for folks uh, who might be listening for the first time and have no idea what Molinism is? Uh, why don't you define what Molinism is, and then we'll jump right into the issue as to why why do you think it's problematic? Yeah, so uh, Molinism is uh, hard to distill down into into one thing, um, and it's kind of gotten a running start in the past, uh, you know, couple couple of decades, and is. Uh, you know, a little bit worse for the wear, I think, but we'll get into to, to the reason for that. Uh, Molinism is, is largely the position that attempts to resolve um, the perceived conflict between kind of the God of classical theism, omniscient, omnipotent, you know, sovereign, um, uh, you know, works all things together for the good of those who love him, right? This kind of, uh, you know, predestinarian type of type of view um, I mean, a lot of people don't realize that, that Molina had a, had a very actually kind of Calvinistic reading of Romans 9. Um, uh, with, at the same time, this concern to uphold uh, human freedom such that 
people are actually responsible for their actions, right? So, um, so it, it, it's 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 an attempt to resolve how that can be, uh, how those two things can be reconciled, right? How can you have a God who is absolutely sovereign, uh, who knows everything about the future, and yet when that future comes providentially in time, we still are making free decisions. Um, that are not uh, that are not you know mechanistically determined where we're robots or, and we're, and so therefore we're still uh, we're still free. So basically, uh, we to reconcile human freedom and a very strong sense of divine sovereignty while yes. preserving kind of a libertarian yeah. free will perspective. Yeah, there's a very strong kind of Calvinistic misunderstanding of Molinism, uh, really of historic Arminianism and other views too, that they're somehow like dismissive of sovereignty. Molinists are actually keenly aware and want to maintain a sure. rather high view of sovereignty actually. Um, so, which I commend them for, I think they just uh, get it wrong. Which, which is one of the reasons why Tyler, some Calvinists who flirt with Molinism mm -hmm. uh, are attracted to Molinism. Yeah. It, it, it really does. I think it really does a good a good job, right? A good yeah. job doing justice to a high view of, of divine sovereignty. But in our estimation, I, I guess not, not high enough and not in a way that uh, we think is reflective of, of how the Bible presents the sovereignty of God. But go, go ahead. Correct. Yeah. So one of the ways that, well, not, not one of the ways, the and kind of initial starting point that it, that it works out is that it wants to say, okay, well, um, it, it bases its kind of interaction between God and creation on this thing called middle knowledge. And to understand what middle knowledge is, you have to understand what free knowledge and natural knowledge are. I guess I should say natural knowledge and free knowledge because that's the direction it goes. Uh, natural knowledge is God's knowledge of himself, um, right? It's, it's, it, it is his uh, kind of necessary knowledge, right? Knowledge of himself and knowledge of necessary truths. It's, it's his knowledge that could not be any other way than it possibly could be. So it's his knowledge of his own omnipotence, his own uh, omniscience, his, you know, the father's love for the son, right? All of those types of things, that's part of his, his natural knowledge. God's free knowledge is his knowledge of what is actually true in the real world, right? So, so it is, it is his kind of con I don't want to say contingent knowledge, but it is his knowledge about contingent facts is what, what, what I should say. Right. So okay. um, it's, it's his knowledge that the sky is blue. Right. He could have made creation and light refract, refract in such a way through, you know, a, a moisturized atmosphere that the sky would appear to us to be red. Right. That, that could have been the case. But he knows that in his creation on the planet Earth, the sky appears blue on, under normal conditions. Right. So, um, so that, that's a piece of his, of his, of his free knowledge. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Good. Well, um, I, I, I like how, uh, when I was, when I was learning Molinism and I was confused as to how Molinists kind of understand the moments of God's knowledge in kind of these three ways, I liked how Kenneth Keithley phrased it. Whereas God's natural knowledge is his could knowledge. He knows everything that could be God's middle knowledge. He knows everything that would be and then there's his divine decree, and then God has his free knowledge, his knowledge of what will in fact be in light of his decree. Right. So you got that that could, the would, and the will knowledge of God. I think that's kind of a helpful way of framing the- It's the helpful. Moment. It's not exactly right. Sure. Um, because again, um, his knowledge of himself is part of that necessary knowledge. And so mm -hmm. it's it doesn't 
doesn't quite fall under the could category. Um, see, see, you see, folks, what, what what Tyler did there. He he disagreed with me and yeah. and 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 expressed that disagreement very respectfully and nicely. <laughs> he was like, "You heretic!" I'm hanging out. No, like, uh, not quite, Eli, not, but not, not quite. All right, man, I'm just um, host, bro. You keep going. Go ahead. But close. So middle knowledge. It's called middle knowledge, not because it's like from Middle Earth or something, uh, but because it's 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 the knowledge that's sandwiched between those two things. It is, it is actually that wood knowledge. It's his knowledge of the way the world. See, this is where I like actually could or would, it doesn't really matter for middle knowledge. It's what, it's what could have been or would have been if conditions had been different and if he had created a different world. Right. It, some people would say God's middle knowledge is his counterfactual knowledge, but even that needs to be very uh, yeah. you know, qualified because even Calvinists believe, for, for example, you do not demonstrate middle knowledge in scripture by simply pointing to counterfactual statements Correct. in scripture because Calvinists can affirm counterfactuals. Yes. It gets more technical than that. Um, but go ahead. Why don't, you, why don't you continue yeah. where you left off? So that's where I was going to actually, I, I was going to get there, right? Because okay. it, it, middle knowledge is not specifically, and I was actually going to make the exact point you just made and give an example why it's okay. not identical with counterfactual knowledge. The reason is because on Calvinism, on a reformed kind of a report, one kind of reformed epistemology, there's a few of them. This is the one that I hold to. So I'm just going to present it because if anyone wants to attack it, they can actually attack my view then. Um, and that is that God's decrees ground his knowledge, right? And so he has that natural knowledge about himself, right? So so God has this natural knowledge that whatever I decree to be true in the actual world will be true, right? So he has this knowledge of had I decreed, let's say the sky to be red, right? Then the sky would be red. God has that counterfactual knowledge, but it's not the case that it's middle knowledge because middle knowledge is specifically knowledge that's based on um, uh, what what libertarianly free creatures would do in different circumstances, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not it's not merely counterfactual knowledge. It's a very specific kind of counterfactual knowledge um, that that really has to do with the type of free decisions that libertarian, and this is gonna be important, that libertarianly free agents would do in different circumstances than okay. what's in the actual world, right? Okay. So, it's, so, so it's not correct. This is, this is one of the rejoinders Molinists will have is like, oh, well, Calvinists deny counterfactuals. No, we don't. <laughs> or they'll be like, oh, well, if you, if you affirm counterfactuals, you affirm middle knowledge. No, we don't. Um, so those, those two things, there, there's not a direct equivocation. Those are, those are not kind of, you know, <laughs> synthetically identical concepts. Um, so they are, they are, they are different. Okay. Um, so Molinism then says, okay, God, God kind of has that, you know, he has, he, he knows what all of these libertarianly free creatures would do given any circumstances. And he, 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 this is also going to be bizarre. He weakly actualizes a specific world. Okay. Right. Which means God is not God is not the kind of, uh, you know, the tinkering God where he's where he's strongly actualizing and making every single thing in that world come to pass. Mm -hmm. Right. He's he's actualizing this set such that. And would, I think, you say, would you say, Tyler, that weak actualization is God actualizing something passively because he in other words, he sets up the circumstances and allows them to play out. And so yeah. it actualizes. It. So that's weak actualization, whereas. Correct. A strong actualization is when God actually exerts power to bring something about. Correct. 
Okay. And, and I and I actually I go back and forth on this. I think there's one. I think there's some sense in which God strongly actualizes mm -hmm. uh, the world because He speaks and it comes into being. But I think in other ways we can we can as Calvinists can say that I understand what they mean when they say He weakly actualizes also because it's not the case. I think um, that God is the direct efficient cause of every single thing that comes to pass uh, as a true fact in the actual world either. So He He strongly actualizes the set but he can kind of weakly actualize what true propositions are within that set, right? So mm -hmm. uh, I, I I understand both ways. Ideas have consequences. Some people can press me on that a little bit, but I understand kind of how it could be. Okay, so, so Molinism is a view of God's omniscience uh, that seeks to um, uh, also reconcile this idea of um, a strong sense of, of divine sovereignty and human freedom and responsibility. It tries to do that while preserving kind of a libertarian free will perspective. Okay. And um, here's a question then, so we can kind of get to a critique of it. So, okay. So, so Molinism simply defined as this is a view of God's omniscience where they understand God having kind of these three moments in his knowledge, mm -hmm. God's natural knowledge, God's middle knowledge, Correct. Uh, and God's free knowledge. And that you have sandwiched between uh, God's natural knowledge and free knowledge, you have his middle knowledge, but what you have sandwiched in between his middle knowledge and his free knowledge is that divine decree. Correct. Okay. Yep. Now, um, the purpose of Molinism is to solve a what people have understood as, as a theological and philosophical conundrum. How do you yep. reconcile this idea of freedom and sovereignty? In your estimation, and here's where we get into the critique, for example, why don't you think Molina and all other versions that were birthed out of Molina's Molinism, why do you think it doesn't do the job? And why is the view actually more concerning, not simply false and unsuccessful, but why is it concerning in terms of, you know, why Christians should be aware of this perspective? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things, and and uh, we're going to, you know, a bunch of Molinists are going to start throwing like lettuce and tomatoes at us very quickly for this. Okay. <laughs> one of the things that I found is that in order to avoid a ton of objections to Molinism, right? So mm -hmm. Molinism gets objections. Like, it's not like, I, I had someone say, tell me that, well, Molinism is true because Calvinism is false. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, that doesn't follow at all. <laughs> like sure. there, there, there are critiques of, of Molinism from other libertarian incompatibilists, right? There, there are critiques of Molinism from, uh, from, from sourcehood incompatibilists like Kevin Tempe, right? There, there, there are so many objections to Molinism. There are ones that are objections purely for philosophical right? The, the, the grounding objection that has to do with God's omniscience and how he even knows um, these libertarianly, like what's the truth maker of these things? How, mm -hmm. how is it that God knows the, these kind of um, the, these counterfactuals of, of libertarianly free creatures if they're not even real, like if they're not actual choices and God hasn't decreed them and nothing exists outside of God, like what is there for God to even know at that point, right? So th there's this, that's a very simplistic version of the grounding objection, but there, there's all these problems that, and they have nothing to do with Calvinism, right? Sure. So there, there are so many, and actually most of my objections to, to Molinism, I could give some that are Calvinistic. Most of my objection to Molinism are, 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 have nothing to do with my Calvinism. I they just I, I just have fundamental. I mean, actually, most of my objections have to do with uh, really problematic views uh, of uh, of omniscience, and from my commitment to classical theism, um, okay. where where you know I think there's there's lots of problems, right? So let let me give let me give a couple examples. 
uh, I can run what's called a reductio ad absurdum. A reductio ad absurdum is a type of objection. It's an internal critique where I say, okay, let's assume this position is true. Okay. Let's push it to its logical ends and see what happens. Right. There's kind of a hard reductio ad absurdum, which is that when you push it to its logical ends, a contradiction pops out. And if a contradiction pops out, it has to be false. Mm -hmm. Right. If something entails a logical contradiction, it's false. Okay. Um, and it's kind of a weaker version of a reductio. And William Lane Craig does this all the time. He's like, look, let's push it to a point where it entails something that nobody wants to be true. Maybe it's not a contradiction, but like nobody who affirms the view ever wants to affirm that that's true. Mm. Right. Um, there's a there's a really funny story I, I told you I was going to tell uh, when I was in college and I at back at Sonoma State and I was a philosophy major and I had a really good friend of mine named Ben. I'm not going to call him out now because he actually is like a professional philosopher. He teaches, uh, <laughs> teaches philosophy now. But we were in this debate and I don't even remember what it was about. Um, but it got to a certain point where he had made so many ad hoc adjustments to avoid criticisms and, av and avoid just admitting he's wrong mm -hmm. that I finally was like, OK, look. You either have to admit that your position is wrong or you have to accept pantheism because that was the logical entailment. Okay. And, and, he, and he looks at me and he goes, well, I guess pantheism is looking pretty good right about now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He was joking. He actually ended up going back and kind of reworking. But the, okay. that's an example of kind of a weak reductio where it's like, OK, but the consequence, the price tag, you know, William and Craig says the price tag is too high. Right? Okay. You're not, you're not going to be willing to shoulder that price to maintain the original thesis, okay. right? So I can do a bunch of those for Molinism, right? So one of them is that Molinism ostensibly starts with this presumption of libertarian freedom. Um, now it's gone through a bunch of iterations. Okay, I'm going to stop you. I'm going to stop yeah. you right there. Now I've heard a knowledgeable Molinist say, "Let's look that up." Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I know a couple of knowledgeable Molinists, uh, but they would say, um, yes, they hold to libertarian freedom, but really Molinism is just a particular view of God's omniscience. So the reason at that point, I'm just going to, maybe I would have to hear them out, but my, okay. my skeptical meter just like goes off the, the rail <laughs> okay. because in order, the, the meaningful difference, right? Is, is specifically, remember when we talked about middle knowledge, it's specifically mm. knowledge of, of the counterfactuals of libertarian freedom, okay. right? Because, because imagine, imagine I say, okay, well, you know, my, my, my reformed epistemology, my reformed view, not epistemology of myself, but my reformed view of how God, of how omniscience is grounded is that God, remember that he has his natural knowledge. He knows whatever he decrees would be the case. He knows what he's going to decree. And so therefore he just knows by elimination, had I decreed this, then it would be the case mm -hmm. that solves all the problems of Molinism. Why don't Molinism take that much more parsimonious position? Because okay. that's not libertarian freedom, mm. right? So the, the they want the, in order for them to have this middle knowledge in a way that they think is meaningful, it requires requires some type of libertarian freedom. So, so would you say that the twin pillars of Molinism is middle knowledge and libertarian free will? Those are the two pillars. Yeah. So the, and 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 really, I don't even like I know like mere Molinism. I don't even like calling those two pillars because one of them is just entailed by the other. Right. So if okay. you have middle knowledge, it's just entailed that you have. It's just one freedom. pillar. Yeah. So, so middle knowledge and and middle knowledge and. Uh, libertarian free will is the one unified pillar of Molinism. 
It's so, the so, substance dualist single pillar. How about that? There's, okay. you know, there's two streams. Okay. So, I don't know. So okay. So so let's deal with that. So let's jump. Let's jump right in then. If middle knowledge and libertarian free will are essential features of Molinism, yeah. then a way to demonstrate that Molinism is false is you need to attack various aspects of of either middle knowledge, libertarian, or, or at least an attack that deals with both of them and so, shows them to be false. How would you do that? That's one strategy. So the strategy, okay. that, that's one that I take. And actually I'll, I'll show some objections to libertarian. If libertarianism is false, Molinism okay. can't be true, right? Okay. That's one tactic. The other one though is, oh, say, okay, well, let's imagine that's the case. That's the starting point. But let's push the entire Molinistic metaphysic, right? Let's push it to its logical conclusion. What pops out? Well, it turns out that compatibilism pops out at the other end. Okay. Right. So what it means is that if if Molinism starts, if my argument is, is successful, right, you're going to have a bunch of people be like, oh, well, you need to demonstrate that's the case. I sure. know. I know I have the burden to demonstrate that claim. I understand. But I'm saying the structure of the argument. Right. I don't know if we're going to get and we do want to leave most of the time for, for open theism. That's so, why I wanted to get straight to the, yeah. you know, so, if I if I have Molinism is false in the thumbnail, we need to address why Molinism yeah, is yeah. false. So go, go, to, go to my channel. Uh, if anyone wants a link, I can go to a link. I have a whole bunch of stuff on 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 kind of these metaphysical problems of Molinism. Sure. Right. If 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 the argument it's not even I mean, I have a version of it, but there I'm not the only one that makes these types of arguments. Right. So. Um, again, one of my favorite arguments against Molinism is from an incompatibilist. Not, you know, anyways, um, so but if if the argument goes through and shows that compatibilism is entailed, well, that means that Molinism starts by the assumption of incompatibilism and entails the truth of compatibilism, which means it affirms incompatibilism and compatibilism, which is a contradiction. Right. So I don't even need to go through and prove that libertarianism is false. I don't need to prove that Molinism is or that middle knowledge is false. I just need to show that the conjunction of those two things held as the Molinist holds it entails it affirming contradictory positions. Mm. Right. And very quickly, the thumbnail version of that argument is this. Right. And, and I give I give lots of different kinds of, of, of examples of this. And that is. When we talk about possible worlds, your audience needs to understand that we're not talking about some type of like sci-fi parallel universe type sure. of thing. We are talking about ways that the world could be. They are, they are sets of true propositions, right? So okay. if 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 in W1, in world one, all let's just, let's, for sake of argument, you know, all propositions A1, A2, A3, A4, all the way down to A, and all, all the A propositions are true. Right. In world two, all the B propositions are true. World three, all the C propositions are true. Right. You can mix and match them all, but like no world has an identical set of true propositions. Mm. Right. The question is, even if it's by God's middle knowledge, right, does the Christian understanding, whether weak actualization or strong actualization, does God determine by his creative decree? Again, I don't even need to be reformed to run this. Sure. Every every Orthodox Christian has an understanding of God's creative decree, right? God chose to create this world and not some other world, okay. right? So so let, you can imagine a world, two worlds that are identical in every single proposition, except for one proposition at T1, at time T1, in world one is X and in world two is not X, and they have no causal implications prior or after. They're identical in every other way, right? Okay. Let's say one of those is the actual world. If God decreed, I am going to create that world, that set of true propositions, right? 
God is causally determining the truth value in the actual world of that proposition at that time, right? Which means, which entails that God is determining the truth value of all the propositions. He's not, he's not, he's not, you know, uh, um, you know, strongly actualizing. He's not tinkering. He's not, he's not efficiently causing and making every single thing to be true, right? It's not hard determinism, but God is determining the truth value of all those, even if it's a, it's a free choice, right? Now, now, I almost said libertarian free choice because the problem is the Molinist is going to want to say, oh, well, that's determined based on his middle knowledge of libertarianly free choices. Mm. Okay, but once God has actualized the world, God's determined the truth value. So now the truth value of my choice at T1 is a determined fact in that set of propositions. God has determined that to be true, but it's determined based on my, was it my libertarian free choice? But in the moment, I don't have libertarian freedom because it's determined, right? It's not incompatibilist anymore. Okay. So you get this kind of negative feedback loop of my, my free choice in the actual world is dependent on my non-existent libertarian choice such that in the actual world, it's not a libertarian choice. Okay. So, the, so the, 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 the causal condition that made it true that made God declare it to determine it to be true actually isn't the choice that I made because the choice that I made in the actual world is a compatibilistic choice, right? Because it was determined and I freely chose it. But the, the truth maker condition was a libertarian choice, right? So you have this problem now of just by, again, I don't have to re resort to any type of Calvinism or reform theology, just yeah. by sh the sheer metaphysics of what's happening in Molinism you, you can derive this contradiction that libertarian freedom entails, you know, libertarian incompatibilism entails compatibilistic determinism, right? So sure. it just entails a contradiction. Can I ask you a quick question? Then this is a clarify, clarifying question for some folks who are trying to follow along. Again, this, this discussion presupposes that you have uh, some knowledge on these sorts of discussions. So those who are just chiming in and being like, what the heck are they talking about? I do apologize. But someone is asking... Um, uh, if you can define libertarian free yep. will real quick. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to try to do it as quick as I can. Okay. Sure. <clears throat> because I, I love Tim Stratton. I love Eric Hernandez. I love these guys. They strangely get some of these things very weirdly wrong, right? Okay. okay. You have two fundamental positions when it comes to reconciling God's, you know, uh, the relationship between determinism and freedom sufficient for moral responsibility right? Those two positions are not libertarian freedom and determinism. Mm -hmm. They are compatible, excuse me, compatibilism and incompatibilism. Compa Let me start with compatibilism first. Compatibilism just is the position that there is a kind of determinism that is compatible with freedom that's sufficient enough to convey moral responsibility, either praise or blame, okay. right? That's all that it is. It's just, just saying that there that there is there is such a thing. There, there, sorry, that there is no principled incompatibility be, between those two things, right? Um, that that it it doesn't commit someone to a certain view of determinism. It doesn't commit someone to a certain view of freedom. It just says that there is no principled incompatibility between those two things. Okay. Incompatibilism is the position that there is a principled incompatibility between those two things. 
there is no possible uh, scenario, there's no possible type of determinism that is compatible with any type of freedom sufficient to grant moral responsibility. They are in principle incompatible. Libertarianism is a kind of hard incompatibilism. Libertarianism comes down to the position, and you're gonna have people riot when you say this, but again, okay. if you read the literature, right? If you read Kane, if you read Tempe, if you, I mean, if you read any of the actual philosophers, libertarianism runs, it absolutely has to run on an assumption of what's called a principle of alternative possibility. It has to. You have to be at liberty to choose A or not A. There has to be this principle of these different possible. You you have to have this 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 power of contradiction, not contradiction in the logical sense, but power to choose A or the contradiction of A, mm -hmm. right? In order to have libertarian freedom. Now you have some people like like Stratton who will say, oh well. We don't actually need, even though he, he still thinks it's true, I think, sure. um, okay. but he'll say, oh, we don't need it to be libertarians. Yeah, as long as you're the source, and I'm just going to say, okay, but sourcehood incompatibilism is not libertarianism. That's a different view, right? So, um, so you may want to try to salvage Molinism by saying, okay, well, let's not have it as libertarian incompatibilism. Now let's try to ground middle knowledge on this kind of sourcehood incompatibilism, which some have tried to do, but it's to disastrous effects. It doesn't really okay. work. This is, this is one of the reasons why, why Tempe, who is a sourcehood incompatibilist, right, says, well, you know, Molinism would be cool if it was true. It's just not, <laughs> um, right? Okay. And, and largely for reasons like that, right? So, okay. so libertarianism is the position that you only have freedom a sufficient condition, a sorry, a necessary condition for freedom is that you have this power to choose from alternative possibilities. Even okay. if that possibility, maybe it's not a range of possibilities, even if it's the possibility of choosing or not choosing, right? Even okay. if it's kind of that bare bone act or not act. Okay. Uh, you have to have some type of even weak principle of alternative possibility. Okay. So, so in my desire to, to move on to open theism, let's yeah. summarize this. So, you know, um, you and I are trapped in a room. I'm a Molinist. You're a Calvinist. Yep. And you're you're going to leave the room. We both have to leave the room and our, end our conversation in like yep. in like three to five minutes. Yeah. How would you in, uh, demonstrate to me as a Molinist in this room with this limited time why you think my position's false? Yeah. Uh, one is the argument that I gave. Okay. Right, that that it just entails a contradiction. If if you if you push the metaphysics where it goes, it entails a contradiction. Okay. Um, an another one is is all of the problems of libertarian freedom, which which this is what we'll, we'll transition into our conversation about open theism. Okay. Libertarian freedom has massive problems. Um, there's a reason why it's a radical minority within the philosophical community. Right? People don't realize this, and they're like, of "Oh, liber well, of libertarian freedom." Yeah, libertarian freedom is a is just a radical minority. It's something oh, like I like wasn't 40, aware of that. Okay, it's something like fourteen percent of professional philosophers um, uh, are, are 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 libertarians. What are most right, right, are actually? And I, I think it's actually sorry, like fourteen percent are incompatibilists. And again, not all incompatibilists are libertarian. So what? Um, so what is the? Uh, I mean, do you have statistics on that? Yeah, you compatibilism is, is, is something like 60-something percent uh, of professional no. philosophers are compatibilists. Okay. Yeah, I mean, okay. Largely because of Frankfurt examples. 
Um, uh, okay, we don't have to get into that. That'll, that'll get it. Yes, um, yes. Okay, I yeah. got you. Um, so, so I, I would go back to Molism, and again, I would, I would go back and say, okay, the only thing that we need to show that libertarianism is false, right? Because libertarianism is the principal position that any type of determinism and any type of freedom sufficient for responsibility are in principle incompatibilism. You cannot have both of those be true, okay. right? Which means it's a very fragile position. All this isn't this is I'm not saying it's fragile because it's libertarian. I'm saying it's fragile because it's a principled position. All principled positions are fragile because you only need one exception to falsify it, okay. right? In the Bible, we have countless exceptions to it, right? The biggest of which is the crucifixion of Jesus, right? So in Acts 2, we have we have uh, you know we have Peter saying that it is probably the predetermined and definite plan of God that you, the Jews, partnered with Pontius Pilate, crucified Jesus, right? So, so it is by God's definite, it, the, the term is his, his, his orizo, his ordination, right? It, it is, he is the or, ordination, or, uh, orizo is the term you would use if you would, when you would establish a plot of land, right? When you would mark out the boundaries of land, you would mm -hmm. create that as a plot of land. You're orizoing it. Okay. So it is by God's establishment. It is by his orizo, his definite plan. Right. I, I could I could picture a libertarian free willer saying, well, just because God determined that doesn't mean everything's determined. But we don't have to respond to that. I would imagine yeah. somebody could say that. I know that yeah, there's so, more back and true. forth that happens there. That's true. But again, I don't need to do that. Remember, in order to falsify libertarian incompatibilism, I just need one example okay. where something is determined and free sufficient for responsibility. That's it. The instant I can prove, uh, we can demonstrate that, that that's a plausible uh, thing that has happened, libertarian incompatibilism is false, right? Okay. Other compatibilist, well, actually incompatibilism is false because it's a prince, it says they're in principle incompatible, right? Okay. So, so we have God saying, I, by, it's by his ordinance, it's by his definite plan, by his decree, by his definite foreknowledge, right? That he has determined the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. It's also the case, I don't think anyone's going to say, that the Jews, uh, you know, who who shouted, shouted crucify him, crucify him, and Pontius Pilate who crucified him, didn't do something morally evil. weren't They weren't morally repugnant, right? Sure. They were morally they 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 did it in such a way that they were free, sufficient for their own moral responsibility. And so we have a biblical case where God has determined that something be the case, and those the actors who make the decision to crucify Jesus are morally responsible and do it because they do it in a free way, right? Sure. So I, we have this case where something is determined and free. Um, and so if that's the case, which I think there's a strong, you know, there, there are a bunch of other ones um, that we can go to, but I think that's a strong case where something is determined and free such that incompatibilism has to be false because it's not in principle the case that if something is determined, it can't be free. The other one, if you can indulge me for one more. Okay. Real uh, quick, real quick. Cause we want to really, really quick. I really want to get focused on the open. Yeah, open the, the other, the other one is just, we're, we're Protestants. We hold a view of scripture such that God has divinely inspired and determined his own word in a way that it's his words to us mm -hmm. in a way that war and peace is not, right? Because it is his God-breathed word. He has determined the content of his word. It's also the case that Paul, in writing Romans and 1 Corinthians, can use first-person pronouns speaking of his, himself, it's also the case that I can say that the author of the book of Judges, I think, is one of the most masterful literary minds that has ever graced the human race. 
Uh, I can praise him for that because I think he was a just an artist. Uh, if you don't appreciate the artwork of Judges, like go home, you don't know how to read. Uh, Judges is just a, a masterpiece uh, of, of literature. Um, but God has determined the content of that word, especially if you're a Protestant and you hold to something like verbal plenary inspiration, sure. right? Where God has inspired uh, the every, you know, ver verbal, not verbal, but verbal having to do with all every single word, plenary, the fullness of every single word. If you affirm something like that, right? But at the same time, you think the biblical authors, their personalities came out in it. They freely wrote it. Paul, Paul freely wrote, you know, Romans in the context of dealing with the Roman church and all that kind of stuff. You have this example of God determining the content of his word and Paul freely writing the content of the word such that both of them can be said to be authors of that, the exact same words. Sure. It's and when you say freely, when you say freely, you're not talking libertarianly free. So there's another yeah. thing people say, oh, freedom. Well, see how, you know, the Molinist explains that fine. Well, that assumes that libertarian freedom is the one that's in view there and that one right. could sufficiently it, defend that. Yeah. And my argument is that that can't be libertarian freedom because God is determining the content of his own word, right? It cannot be libertarian freedom uh -huh. if it's determined and Paul is free. It Because it, libertarianism is an incompatibilist position. So the instant you have something determined and something free in a in a in a, in a praise or blameworthy way, where we can we can praise God, we can praise uh, Paul for his his literary you know uh, you know genius and and for his insightfulness and all that kind of stuff, you just have a case that incompatibilism is false. Mm -hmm. right? So it can't whatever it is again whatever it is. Here we have we have something here. Uh, I just, I just caught my eye. We're not going to go to questions just yet, but someone says, "What on earth does inspiration of scripture have to do with Molinism? God can inspire scripture, and it doesn't affect Molinism at all." This is honestly painful to watch. Well, I definitely don't want to cause you pain, but uh, yeah. we want to address that. How is this related? Yeah. How are you tying this issue of inspiration of scripture with this kind of um, issue of Molinism? And let's end the Molinism section here, yeah. and then go to the open theism portion. Yeah, I, I mean, I I would encourage uh, Beowulf to just go back uh, and listen to the lead into this because the mm -hmm. whole point of it was you asked me, how would I tell someone, well, how would I show to someone that liberty, that, that Molinism is false? Well, one of the ways was again, was some of those internal inconsistencies where it, where it actually advanced contradictions. The other one is that certain assumptions that it comes with a la libertarianism are false. Perfect. And if I can give arguments to show that libertarian incompatibilism is false, then it falsifies Molinism because Molinism necessarily relies on that, right? right. So if I can knock the the legs out from underneath it, then then it's falsified, right? So right. that that's why that that, that right. And that person, the person could disagree with your analysis, but that's how it's related. So you're not just completely talking about something, you know, completely and utterly unrelated. So uh, all right, thank thank you for that. All right, so. Um, James White, doc, Dr. White, has has said often that Arminianism, the, the only consistent Arminianism, is open theism. Um, and um, we're not going to get into Arminianism at this point, but um, I've heard you say that a consistent Molinism uh, leads to our open theism. So let's use this as a segue to talk about open theism. What yeah. is open theism? You, you don't have to necessarily draw that connection. So yeah. So if you think a consistent Molinism leads to open theism. We're not going to address that here. I'm just kind of expressing, you know, some people think there's a connection there. Okay. You take right. that for what it is, but let's move into open theism. What is open theism? Okay. Perhaps you can mention a few noted people who hold to the position and then let's jump right into why you think 
there are real problems with open theism. People should be concerned um, about this position and should adequately yeah. be able to respond to it biblically, philosophically. So let's take it from there. Go ahead. What's, what is open theism? Yeah. Really, really quick. I want to say for the audience, I'm going to throw a bone. I don't agree with white that <laughs> about Arminianism. Okay. That way. Um, okay. So I do think I'm that quoting way. from memory. I might be, yeah. maybe he hasn't said that. Maybe he did. No, I, I he, he probably has, he has, you know, Calvinists get a lot of things about Arminianism wrong because a lot of times Calvinists confuse historic Arminianism with Wesleyanism, with evangelical right. Arminianism, with provisionism, right? And a lot of times they confuse their own position. I've had people be like, I'm an Arminian. And you talk to me like, you're a provisionist. You're not an Arminian. Uh, anyways, um, so, um, so open theism is... Whereas I think Molinism is simply unbiblical and just wrong, I don't think that it's, it's uh, I'm not that concerned about it, although I think it has negative entailments. Okay. One of them is I think it opens wide the door because of its view of libertarianism. I think it opens wide the door um, to open theism. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing people like, uh, you know, uh, well, again, I don't want to name all the names. We see people who are basically saying, you know, hop, skip, and jump. Well, I'm a Molinist. Well, you know, now let me kind of just, let me just go like dabble in this and like see what it's about. And like my, my inclination is like, hey, if the church has considered something a heresy for 2000 years, maybe we don't just go like kick it around. Let's, let's just like, let, let, you know, dead dogs be dead. Um, so, you know, there, there's that little bit of, you know, kind of impulse in me, which I understand not everyone shares that same impulse, but sure. you know, I, I, I'd, I'd rather not cuddle with wolves. Um, so there, there's a certain, there's a certain sense where, where that is, that, that, that's my, my, that's kind of where my, my leading problem with it is. Open theism is the position that's built on kind of a hard incompatibilism, like, like libertarianism on steroids usually has to do with the kind um, when you, when you talk to someone who's an open theist, they usually can't even, they can't even fathom any other concept of freedom outside of libertarian incompatibilism. Okay. It's just, it's just, if that, if that's not it, then, you know, you're just redefining words or you're a fatalist or you're, you know, all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Right. So um, which is, is very problematic. Right. So open theism is built on that assumption. And it says, because on incompatibilism, on, on libertarianism, um, there is nothing that is a that is a causal predetermining condition, right? Nothing causally determines our choices, right? And if nothing causally determines our choices, then our choices are indeterminate. So then that means, let's say you come to situation, you know, C at time T1. It means C is indeterminate with respect to decision X or not X. C does not determine, there's nothing in C, in, in context C at T1 that determines the choice that the agent will make either to X or not X. Okay. Can you say that? Uh, now I understand what you're saying. Can you say that more simply? So I think yeah. you, uh, for folks who are tracking, but once you start using the C and the T1 and that might be confusing, why don't you say that in kind of a, like if you were just talking to someone on the street saying, Hey, I heard about this thing, open theism, like what yeah. is it? How would you define it for somebody? Yeah. So open theism is the view that God, the future is open to God. He doesn't know it. Okay. Um, he doesn't know with certainty, right? He has some, he has, you know, he's a good guesser. He's a good strategist. Um, he takes some risks, he takes some gambles, but he doesn't know the future. Mm -hmm. 
um, because the future is open, right? Because all of those free choices are indeterminate. Nothing previously causes those things. And since you cannot infer the outcome from any prior cause, nothing is determining it. So there, there's nothing to be known. The open theist, so to kind of draw an analogy, maybe this will help. A lot of people are familiar that omnipotence is not the view that God can do anything, you know, logic be damned, right? It's not, omnipotence is not the view that God can make square circles. It's not the view that God can make married bachelors, although some voluntarists think that that's the case, okay. right? Most Orthodox people will say that omnipotence means that God can do whatever God wants to do. And since God's nature is the grounding of logic, that include that that means that he is constrained by his own nature such that he can only do logically possible things. Sure. Right? So God can do anything he wants to do, but he can't make a square circle because that's not a thing. Right. That, that, that's 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 he can't make a merry bachelor. That's not a thing to make. Right. That's the, that's like saying he can make a swivel swarp. Right? That's just not a thing. Um, so uh, or, or or like he knows like what what the color seven tastes like. It's just meaningless, right? So, um, so th those types of things. So, we're going to say that given omnipotence, it's not that God can. It's it's that God can do anything, but it's not that any conjunction of words is a thing, right? The open theist is going to say in a very similar way, God can know all things that can be known. It's just that these. It's just that the future is not the type of thing that can be known. So mm -hmm. a known future is like is to them like a square circle, or so, like so, a very So an open. And I heard in in popular circles, people say, "Well, open theism is the view that denies that God knows the future." Would could you say that, um, uh, you know, or they deny God's omniscience? Could you say that open theists? Don't deny God's omniscience. They believe he knows all things. But as you said, the future is not a thing that can be known. Yeah. That is, I would say, yeah. Okay. In, in, a, in a very, very, very loose way, they mm -hmm. affirm a version of omniscience. Yes. The, the thing is, is that they just don't affirm a biblical view of omniscience. They, they, sure. they, they just don't affirm anything that has to do with how omniscience has been understood for, for you know, all, in the entirety of I mean, I'm not even going to say church history. I mean, I'm going to go all the way back to like, you know, it, it, with the instant that we have a concept of, of God as, as God under classical theism, you have an omniscient God who knows all things, including the future, right? Can make true prophecies. Um, so um, they just deny that. It, so it, it is to deny a fundamental attribute that is, uh, that is the case under classical theism. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. So, okay. So, okay. So that's open theism. Why is this something we should be concerned about? And why do you think it's wrong? And I want you to go as, as deep as you can to kind of pick this view apart and why we think it's false. So, yeah. so we, so Christians shouldn't hold to it and why it's problematic biblically and why Christians shouldn't hold to it for that reason. And so, yeah. so why don't you take this time to really go in deep? I, I know that you also have some slides you want to share as well. And perhaps yeah, I'll get to those in a second. So, sure, sure. so I, I would start again, the same arguments that I, that I gave against Molinism about, about libertarian freedom apply here okay. because if libertarian freedom isn't true, open theism falls apart. Okay. Right. So, um, so all of those same problems that with that, that incompatibilism has specifically libertarian incompatibilism has, um, open theism has. So if if those if those go through already, open theism is already a non-starter. Sure. Um, the 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 biblical data is very clear. Um, God uh, God knows all things, right? God can declare the ends from the beginning. 
Um, God, God makes certain decrees, certain uh, determinations before the foundations of the world, or at the very least, before the events happen, right? We, there, there are things that are true prophecies. Sure. Um, so, so, you know, so you, we, we have, I don't know, what is it? 300 something prop prophecies about Jesus. If you take like the really substantive ones, sometimes I, I agree with our skeptics. Sometimes I hear those and I'm like, eh, that's kind of a stretch. Uh, but there are some ones that are that's like an interesting topic for another episode. Yeah. Is, uh, uh, but, but things like Isaiah 53, very clearly a prophecy about Jesus. The fact mm -hmm. that he would come from, you know, uh, from, uh, from Bethlehem, uh, very clear that, you know, the born of a virgin, uh, right. Born of, well, born of an Alma. Right. So, so all, all of those types of things, I think are very, very clear, um, that, that they are, that they are true biblical prophecies. Now, mm -hmm. a lot of them are hundreds of years in advance, Right. Here's here's the thing. In order for 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 God to make a true prophecy, for example, about uh, Jesus being born in Bethlehem, mm -hmm. right? Think of all the astronomical number of other. Now you're going to get into open theism, libertarianly free choices that God cannot know, that have to be the in, in that case in order for that to happen. Right. Because just think of all the choices that you have to get so that everybody meets everybody, marries everybody, have the kids that they are going to have, have those specific kids make the choices that they're going to move. They're going to live in a certain place. They're going to do this. And again, you not only have to have those, you have to have in inconsequential choices. Right. Imagine all the choices that they made that prevented them from, uh, you know, as a child, putting that one rock that has that disease into their mouth that would kill them. Right. So you have all of the you have actually all of these these kind of blockage cases of where they choose something other than what would again. I mean, the, the mortality rate in, the, in that time frame, astronaut, the things that kids sure. put in their mouth, you would die. Like so you have, you have to think of all the free will, libertarianly free will choices that God cannot know the billions upon billions and billions and trillions of choices in order to even get to the place where uh, Mary and Joseph ride into Bethlehem sure. Sure. for Jesus to be born, right? God can't know any of those. And yet somehow he has this true prediction, even mm -hmm. though he can't know anything about that, right? So, so you have all of the, you have all these, these problems when it comes to, to true prophecies. Okay. My biggest, I mean, I have, I have, I, I there, there's, there's too many to go into and, and I'll talk about some of the hermeneutics and some of the things that are entailed by it. But my biggest sure. biblical objection, and this is where the slides come in, if you want to bring up the slides. Sure, absolutely. Um, let, me, let me bring them up on the screen here. It, it, I'm, I'm, if you see me smiling, it, um, it, it, uh, folks are, are asking me uh, to smile more. I look really serious when I'm concentrating. <laughs> so I'm trying to listen to what you're saying. Is you know this isn't, this isn't elementary stuff. I'm kind of like, so. Um, I'm in a good mood, so I'm going to make sure I smile for folks. Once I don't want to. Hey, hey, by the way, guys, I do. I, there are questions, uh, but if you have any questions, um, please um, preface your question with a Q or the word "question," and we'll we'll address them. Um, and I, I'm a little insulted. I have uh, there are a, a lot of people watching, a lot of great comments. Only only ten likes. Come on, man. Come on, give me some more likes. There, I think this conversation is going really well, and there's a lot of helpful information here. So uh, hook a brother up. All right. So <laughs> let me let me. Uh, there yeah. we go. Okay, so my biggest objection uh, is going to come is that open theism fails the test of a true God given by Yahweh in the Old Testament uh, against the prophets of Baal, right? So, um, th so there is. Let me let me click over here. 
so there, there, there's these two passages, right? Um, and I'm going to go through the first one really, really quick because that one's really, I think, an argument against libertarianism. The second okay. one is the, is the major problem. Um, but there's these two passages in Isaiah 41 and 46 um, where, where God is giving these, giving these tests to what is a true and a false God, right? Mm -hmm. So in, in Isaiah 41, uh, verses 21, 24, it's, uh, he, he's, you know, Yahweh is kind of antagonizing these prophets. And he says, uh, present your case, the Lord says, bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says, right? That's Yahweh. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were that we may consider them and know their outcome or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward, that we may know that you are gods. Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. Behold, you are of no account, and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, I'll go to a syllogism here in a second. The other one is going to be the foundation for the second argument, and these transfer to the other slide, so they're there for reference. Isaiah 46, 9 to 10. Remember the former things long past, for I am... Yahweh, and there is no other. I am Yahweh, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that have not yet been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish my pleasure. Okay, so here's the arguments. Um, the first one is against libertarian free will, but it really is um, going to strongly attack open theism, right? And that is, uh, this is going to go through the premises. If God is, if, if a God is not a true God, then they cannot declare the future as causally inferred from past events. So notice in 21 to 10, 23, that, that it says, let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place as for the former things, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome or announce to us what is coming. That is, tell us what happened in the past so that we can know what will happen in the future, right? Mm. It just is the case that we that a true God should be able to look at the past, consider them, and know what will come in the future. Well, if if open theism is is, is the case, and our and our decisions are are indeterminate, that cannot be the case, right? So it goes on. So number two, Yahweh can declare the future as causally inferred from the past. Uh, that's later on. Therefore, uh, by Modus Tollens, Yahweh is a true God uh, from one and two. Uh, premise four, all other gods cannot declare the future as causally inferred from the past. Uh, premise five, from one, Modus Ponens from one and four, all other gods are not true gods. Uh, implication of three and five is that Yahweh, therefore, is the only true God. Um, number seven, if a future event can be known as causally inferred from the past by a true God, then libertarian free will cannot be true, right? Because remember, libertarian freedom has to have that causally indeterminate principle of alternative possibilities built in, right? Future events can be known and as causally inferred from the past by a true God. That's the implication of two and seven. Right. Uh, and therefore, by Modus Spolens, libertarian free will cannot be true. Number 10 should be, therefore, open theism is false, right? Um, Th uh, therefore, the, the test that Yahweh establishes, the note on the bottom, in testing of gods of Babylon assumes a metaphysics of causality, whatever that is. Again, you don't have to pick what type of determinism or capitalism, right. whatever it is, it's not libertarian freedom, right? And so therefore, libertarian freedom is false, right? The more substantive, the more relevant one for open theism, although I think that's devastating open theism, is this one it's from the second verse. 
right? If a God is not a true God, they cannot declare the future as they can the past. Yahweh can declare the future as he can the past. Therefore, Yahweh is a true God. And again, the whole point is the same way that God can exhaustively tell us all past events. If you're a true God, you should be able to exhaustively tell us all the future events. You should be able to tell us from the beginning to the end, everything that's going to happen. Yahweh can do that. Therefore, Yahweh is a true God. All other gods cannot declare the future as they can the past. Therefore, all other gods are not true gods. Yahweh, therefore, is the only true God, right? So the, the outcome of this is that, therefore, the view of God, the God, little g, of open theism would not pass the test that the true God, Yahweh, established in testing the gods of Babylon. And therefore, the concept of God in inherent open theism is a false concept of God. It's an idol. Okay, so Tyler, so, so okay, so surely open theists have read this passage and has, and heard these arguments. What are some of the things that an op, that open theists say in response to the account you just gave, the argument you just gave? Yeah, it, it's all over. It's all over the map um, because you know we can talk about this. Their hermeneutic, well, they don't have a hermeneutics, right? Their, their hermeneutic is so all over the board. Um, and, and we can talk about some of that, right? Because they're going to want to go to passages where, where Yahweh, they say he changes his mind or he repents or he learns new things, right? The hermeneutic to get to those interpretations is just like mind numbingly all over the place. But okay. here they're going to come back and they're going to say, okay, but he, th this isn't talking about any type of causal inference, right? This is, this is, this is, is able, is God able to kind of read the tea leaves of what's happening? Right. So so when Jesus think think of the, the funny thing is, is they make the exact same argument that like the hypercritical scholars do of Jesus predicting the fall of Jerusalem. Right. It's not that he knew. Right. It's that he could read the tea leaves. He right? read the times. Yeah, he, he could read that. He knew what was probably going to be the case. And then he would you know place his bet on black. Right. And he just happens to be a very good guesser. And so therefore he's a very good gambler. Mm -hmm. um, but again, the whole point of the passage is, well, these other gods, it, it's not about gambling. It's not, are these other gods just good at gambling? It's no. Can they declare to us the future in the same way that they can declare to us the past, which is to tell us everything about the past and their outcome. And so we can know what's coming and all that. Right. So it's, it's this, it's this very robust, if, if, if God cannot know the past, or sorry, if God cannot know the future like he can know the past, mm -hmm. then he's not a true God. Well, the God of open theism can't know the future like he knows the past. And so therefore he fails that their concept of God fails the test of what it means to be a true God. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Well, is that it for your slides there? Yeah, that's, that's all the slides. So so my one of my biggest objections against open theism is simply that it, that it fails the test that God gives to us about himself compared to false gods. Mm, okay. All right. And when you say they're all over the map in yeah. responding to this, I mean, uh, do you only mean that they just use kind of uh, the sporadic use of these passages that we would understand as kind of anthropomorphic? I mean, how would you respond to an open theist who says, well, well listen, Tyler, I am, uh, I'm taking scripture at face value. And it's you who, who has to do all these, you know, jumping jacks and cartwheels to avoid what the text clear, uh, you know, seems to be clearly saying. How would you respond to something like that? Yeah, I mean, I, at that point, I would say, okay, 
<clears throat> well, then exegete the passage, right? Let, let's go through and let's exegete the passage and let's use good hermeneutical principles. One of the principles, okay. I can stop sharing this, but one, sure. one, of, the one of the principles that we use in hermeneutics uh, is called the analogy of faith or the rule of faith. And okay. that is that the clear, we use the clear to interpret the less clear, right? So, so we don't say, okay, well, there's this really weird, unclear, we don't know what's happening in the book of Revelation. And we're going to turn that around and we're going to use that, our weird... We don't exactly know what's happening. And we're going to read Romans through that. Like we're going to, we're going to interpret revelation first and then we're going to take that and we're going to take that position and then try to read it back into and understand Romans. Okay. Right. Because Romans is a didactic letter. It's not using, there is symbolism, but it's not using prophecy. It's not using apocalypse. It's not heavy on, on, on symbolism, right? It's not, it's, it's a very straightforward, very didactic letter, right? It's just telling you the way things are. Right. Cool. Again, it doesn't mean there's no symbolism. I'm not trying to say that, sure. but uh, you're right. I mean, we, we have, we have, you know, Paul using allegory in Galatians, right? So we're not saying that, but we use the clear to interpret the less clear. Sure. Right. We use, we, we don't, and this is, you know, our problem with, uh, with certain, certain brothers, we don't use parables to interpret the book of Romans, right? We don't, we don't get our systematic theology from reading every jot and tittle and kicking every single tire and turning every sing, over every single stone of the parable of the prodigal son. Sure. Right. Um, so, uh, sorry, I just, you know, but that, that's, that's, we use good hermeneutics, right? There are examples where they're going to say, okay, well, if we look to passages, um, let me, let me see if I can get, if I, if I have them up, right? So we, we have examples where it seems like God has repented right okay. or, or or relented of something right um i i, I think uh is it is it genesis 22 12 right where where uh after after abraham sacrifices uh or, or, or agree you know basically tries to sacrifice his son yahweh says um uh for now that now for now i know yeah, now i know yes god Right. And the open theist is going to go to that and they're going to say, oh, well, see, God learned something. Right. He didn't know that before. Now okay. he knows that Abraham fears God. Right. right. Implying that he didn't know before. So that's why he, he needed the test. Right. There's a couple of problems with this. Okay. Right? In Hebrews, uh, we're told repeatedly that, that, that Abraham was faithful and trusted the Lord and was justified by faith way back at the original covenant. Right. Okay. God knew that Abraham was faithful. We're told didactically way before that, like, like decades before. Right. Um, so, so it's just not the case that God didn't know this before. Right. Um, it also, it also doesn't say um, that, that he now knows that Abraham would choose to sacrifice his son. It says, I now know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son. Okay. okay. So it's not that God, so they're, they're going to want to read it and say, okay, well, God didn't know that Abraham would actually go through with it. Right. But notice God isn't saying now I know what your decision is going to be. It's now I know what your heart is. It's now I know that you fear the Lord. Well, was that not the case in the heart of Abraham before the incident? 
So is it not the case that God didn't have present knowledge about Abraham's heart prior Mm. to the decision? So now you have, if you actually take their view, you have this problem where God now doesn't even have certain presence. Okay. I see what you're getting at there. Um, So, so uh, God would have, the open theist says that God knows all present things. And so that that would include the state of every person's heart at the present moment. And so what you're saying is based on their understanding that would entail that God doesn't have present knowledge of their heart because he says, now I know, you know, uh, that's interesting. Okay. All right. Very good. I like that. Um, That's that's clear. There, there are, there are other examples um, where like in, uh, in, uh, in Kings, I think it's, uh, I, I I don't have all my, all my, I I thought I pulled it up, but I, Anyways, uh, I'll, I'll keep I'll keep looking for it. But um, where uh, in in Second uh, Kings, it's in Second Kings um, where it talks about how um, God God relents, sure, right? And they're going to say, Ah, see, God changes His mind, right? The problem is that in the exact same chapter, we're told that God is not a man that He should change His mind. mind, relent. It's exact same Hebrew term, right? Um, or lie. Right. So it says, because God's not a man like us, he can't do these two things. Right. He can't change his mind. He can't he can't you know, he can't change his mind and he can't lie. Right. Well, the open theist wants to say, well, God can change his mind, but he can't lie. Okay. And it's like, okay, but God just said he he can't. The prophet just said he can't do either of those things because he's not a man like us. So what's happening in the narrative when it appears that God is changing his mind, it's not that he's actually like God's like, oh, I learned something new. Now I'm going to change my mind and do something else. It's no, it's it's dealing with these in anthropomorphic language where it appears from from our perspective that a that kind of a shift has happened in God's interactions with us. So from our perspective, it looks like God was going towards destruct, destroying this village, right? They repented. God's not going to destroy them. He must have changed his mind. Mm-hmm. Well, no, God knew that they were going to repent just because he goes one direction and plan and decrees that if they repent, he will not, he, he will relent. He knows he's going to relent. He doesn't change his mind just because there's a shift in program doesn't mean that God changes his mind because he's not a man like us that he should change his mind. But they're going to want to say, okay, well, in the narrative, God changes his mind. So now they're going to, because now they're going to take the narrative, they're going to take the less clear, and they're going to read it back into the didactic statement about God. And they're going to say, well, we have to interpret the didactic statement in light of the narrative, which is just exactly backwards. Right. That's that's just the exact reverse of how the analogy of the rule of faith. That's just not good hermeneutics. Right. And if we follow there again, we follow their same thing. That means that uh, think about all the times where it appears like God is learning something. Like Genesis three. Adam, where are you? Does that mean that God doesn't know? Where Adam is, and he well, that would that would, probably, that would have to be part of his present knowledge. So his that's exactly so his, right. Uh, so his Adam, where are you? He shouldn't be asking that question if open theism is true, because Correct. God should already know where he is. He should already know. Where, so what? So what happens though is they say, okay, well, if we have this, if we have this narratival thing where God asks a question or is learning something, 
then he's learning something. He doesn't know it. But here we have an example where narratively that happens, but it's actually about a present reality. So now if we follow their, their hermeneutic consistently, it's another example where God doesn't have present knowledge. But what they do is they say, oh, well, that, that question is asked in instructive irony. Right. Mm. It, it's 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 for a, 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 a pedagogical purpose to okay. teach something important. So my question is, OK, but that's exactly how the rest of the world reads those other narratives. Right. So sure. so, so why why is it the case that 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 when it's when it's convenient for you to now read it? This way, the rest of us, the way the, re, the West, rest of us read these these passages about God in anthropomorphic terms. Sure, you say no, that has to be literal. He's learning something. But an inconsistent, an inconsistent standard yeah, at that it's point. It's just because they don't have they don't have a consistent hermeneutics. Sure, it's all over the place. Okay. Um. So so you, so you have the so you have that problem. Um. Any question? I, I have one more like major criticism of open theism. Uh, why don't you go for it? And then what I want to do at this point is I want to move to the Q and A because there are a lot of questions, and I want to make sure that we get to cover them. And um, if there are any open theists in the chat or anyone who's a Molinist, you have a specific question or you think something Tyler glossed over too quickly, um, you know, more than happy to address them. So, um, please send those questions in if you have them. And uh, all right, Tyler, why don't you take it away with that last point you wanted to make? Yeah, so the, the last point is, and this is, um, I admit, this is a slippery slope argument. Okay. Flat out admit it from the beginning. Um, but as I've said, my concern is simply the fact that ideas have consequences. There are these slippery slopes that happen. I have not found any open theist who started as kind of a, um, well, Simply because you know free things are are indeterminate, you know, indeterminate, um, they don't stay that way, right? Because that that has that certain view has implications. Okay. It has implications for whether or not God is timeless, right? Because if God learns something, then it changes. But if something is timeless, it doesn't change, right? Right. So now they're going to say, well, God isn't timeless, or, right? So. And if God's not timeless, that means he's changing in response to his creation, which means now God is no longer a say, nor is he immutable, right? And if those go, God is no longer simple, right? So, so what happens is the instant, I, I, I find that the instant someone starts going into open theism, everything else collapses, right? They, they, because, and it's precisely because on classical theism, God is simple. Right. To deny one attribute really is to deny all the incommutable attributes. Right. So you start having these major, major problems where if you start pulling at the thread. Right. Well, there's just one ball of thread. Right. It's not a bunch of little threads. You can pull one out and discard it and it's fine. You're unweaving the entire ball of thread as you go. The more sure. and more you dig. And so I found that open theists tend to get back into what is, and again, they're going to hate this, but it gets into this kind of very, 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 very big and powerful Zeus, right? It's this God. He doesn't know everything. He tries really, really hard. He's a really, really good gambler. He's very loving. He's not a malevolent like Zeus is sometimes, right? He's good, but he doesn't, he doesn't always get his way. Um, uh, and, and he's not, he's not, 
he's not simple. He's not a say. He's not immutable. He's not timeless, right? All these kind of things to the point where now you start getting into someone like Chris Fisher, where God is literally mm. on a podium, literally up there looking down on us because he has to observe what's happening to know what's happening. Right. Okay. So, um, so you, you start getting into all of these positions simply because they cracked open the door of open theism and said, oh, well, maybe, maybe God doesn't know the future. Right. Ideas have consequences and those types of radical consequences follow when you open that door. Mm. All right. Well, thank you for that. That's a lot of information. And I think it's, it's good. Um, actually someone earlier on, uh, commented that they were grateful that there's so much information packed just in this one episode. So uh, definitely there are things that need to be unpacked a little bit more, uh, but hopefully this provides kind of a foundation for folks to kind of dig a little deeper into uh, into this topic. I do have one book. I have never read it um, by John Frame where he addresses uh, yeah. open theism. I don't know if you've read it. You think it's a good book. Um, John Frame, No Other God, A Response mm -hmm. to Open Theism. Is this, a, is this a good book for that, folks that to check out? That one's a really good book and Bruce Ware's interactions with open theism. Okay. Um, so uh, John frame, Bruce Ware um, uh, and DA Carson uh, give some of the best takedowns of open theism uh, that are available. I did want to add one more thing, right? Sure. We're Christians here. Yeah. The important thing about the gospel um, is I don't know how many people saw the video where Pine Creek uh, made fun of me, right? For being beaker. Cause I kept saying me. Right. Uh, meet me. Me. Right? <laughs> That's pretty funny. Come on. <laughs> I, I thought. It was, I thought. It was, I actually. You know, Doug. Thank you. Thank you for helping me get the gospel out. You know, I think it has like seven or eight thousand views. Sure. Thanks. I was. I was talking about the gospel. I was talking about Jesus's love for me personally. Okay. Right. So what what follows is, and if you press open theists, open theists, <clears throat> because God can't know the future. Again, of all those, think of all those things that had to happen when God created the universe, or two thousand years ago at the crucifixion. All of the things that had to happen for me to be here, for you to sure. be here, sure. right? It means no matter. And again, this isn't even a Calvinist. This is just. It doesn't matter what your. I don't care if you have a limited view or a, a universal view of the atonement. It does not matter, right? Whatever your view is, we believe that whoever Christ was dying for, he was dying because he loved them personally. Right. So when Christ died on the cross, whether what again, I'm not saying this as a Calvinist, he loved me. He loved Tyler Vela. Right. He loved me redemptively and he loved me in Christ. And he took my sin and died for my sin so that I might live uh, a, a life of eternity and I might share the gospel with others uh, and I might, uh, you know, and I might glorify him. Right. All the other things, all, all the other benefits of Christianity, all, all the other imperatives of Christianity, all, all that kind of stuff is because God in Christ loved me personally. Hmm. If open theism is true, God did not know that I would exist, right? So when Christ died on the cross, he did not die for me. He died for his love of faceless humanity, right? But he did not die because he loved me. He did not die because he loved you. He did it not die because he It makes the atonement impersonal. Yeah, it, it makes it, it makes it, loving in a sense that it's not meaningful, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? It, 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 you could say it's loving in the sense like, um, you know, Armageddon where, where Bruce Willis like dies on the asteroid to save humanity, <laughs> right? I haven't seen that movie in a while. <laughs> Great movie. Uh, but 
when we understand when we understand the atonement and we you know again if you're if you're an arminian if you're a provi- i mean i i give provisionists the business all the time right I will stand shoulder to shoulder with provisionists and Arminians and Catholics and Ethan Ortho. Like we all stand against open theism on this. Mm-hmm. And that is that whoever Christ was dying for, whether you think it's limited, whether you think it's universal, whether you think it's universal insufficiency, limited in scope, I don't care what your view is. We all disagree with the open theist because we all believe that God loves individuals on the cross. Mm. That is not the case on open theism. It completely declaws the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ because he didn't do it for anybody specific, except maybe the people that he knew in his real life. Yeah. Right. That's it. Um, And so I think it's a radical undermining, uh, not not only of of basic Christian orthodoxy, not only of classical theism, not not only uh, of anything like that. It just radically undermines the gospel itself, because mm. God didn't do it because he loved anybody in specific. Okay. All right. Thank you so much for that. I think you did a great job. There's a lot of information there. So uh, folks could go back and listen to this discussion. Hopefully uh, folks will find it very useful. What I want to do now is I want to go all the way back to the beginning here and see if we can plow through some questions. Now, um, Tyler, I don't want to control the nature of how you answer the question, but let's let's try and go through them as quickly as we're able to. Um, I mean, if you think you need more time to expand on something, go for it. I mean, I, I do it, but I know a lot of these can be kind of rabbit trail sort of things and we can spend too much time on, on a question. So, um, let's, let's go through this here. I mean, you have to give me a moment here. I just have to scroll through yeah, here. Yeah, okay. Tyler already defined libertarian free will before. So, uh, okay. So here's a question from, uh, Michael Faber. He says, Molinism is positing a different compatibility than Calvinists. That doesn't make it an incompatibilist system. What would you say to that? So I I would just say that, and I know Michael Faber, uh, he is not a fan of mine. Um, I could tell from the comments. (laughs) He's simply wrong. So um, because Molinism, because middle knowledge is is grounded. I mean, I mean, Tim Stratton says that one of the pillars of Molinism is libertarian freedom, right? So uh, libertarian freedom just is an incompatibilistic system. So, it, so it is. It's, it is not the case that Molinism <laughs> is a different type of compatibility. Again, that's my my argument. Actually, is that it entails a different type of compatibility, but it starts with the presumption of incompatibility. And so it entails this contradiction. And if you don't start with the presumption of incompatibility, then Molinism just becomes, you just don't need it. It just becomes superfluous, right? There, there are, if you're not an incompatibilist, you don't need Molinism. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. Um, this, uh, Mr. C asks a question, but this is a comment here, but it's in the form of a question later that I saw. So maybe you could address this um, because he seems to uh, say this a lot in some of my videos. Um, but I don't think he understands the whole author of confusion context where it's found in scripture. So he says, funny, both these guys uh, would agree that God is not the author of confusion. And I, and he's suggesting that because this is an issue that is debated, you know, there's just so much confusion. How can God be the author of, of all this sort of stuff? Um, what's wrong with that statement suggesting that because this is a hotly debated topic that, you know, you know, God's not the author of confusion. So I don't know what you guys are talking about. How would you address that? Yeah, I mean, the, the simple answer is God's not the one that's confused. We are. Um, we, we're the author of our own confusion. We're, we're the ones that don't always get it and disagree about it. So, yeah, God's not the author of confusion. Just, just because we disagree 
So it just doesn't follow. Again, it's like the author of sin. Right? Sure. God, God can agree that something's the case, but it does it doesn't mean that he is the the, the cause of it, right? It doesn't mean he's the efficient cause of it. He can be the deficient cause of it, uh, but he's not the efficient cause of it, right? So just because we're confused, and I don't actually think I'm that confused about it, right? Even if I'm wrong, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm confused. I don't feel confused about it. Um, maybe someone can can demonstrate that I'm wrong. Go okay. for it. Um, but I don't, I, you know, I, God isn't the author of confusion. Great, we agree. That's right. And th th that passage has nothing to do with whether we can be confused over certain things. By the way, the same God that we believe is not the author of confusion is the same God that confuses the tongues of the people of the Tower of Babel. So <laughs> there's a context for these things. You don't just get to say God's not the author of confusion and then just have an understanding, an a-contextual understanding of that. Yeah. God, um, God's also not the author of lies, but people lie. That's right. That's like right. it, it just not nothing. That's just not a non sequitur. It just doesn't follow. Okay. Um, Quinn Sole uh, says libertarian free will is false. What does Tyler think about Bosserman's view on grounding free will and divine sovereignty paradoxically in the Trinity alone? If you're familiar with Bosserman's view, there. I'm not that familiar with Bosserman. Uh, okay. I watched your interview with him. I'm not so. Um, I've gotten in some disagreements with some people about. Uh, about Bosserman's view, I, from what I understand, I don't think he's successful. Okay. Um, but I've been told by some people that I that I really respect that I don't understand Bosserman well enough. Um, okay. which I will take that. Maybe I don't understand him well enough. I don't think that he's successful in grounding anything in the Trinity the way that he tries. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have some reservations about that, but I, I'm going to hold them to myself because they're kind of based on only what I've seen in interviews on YouTube and a couple excerpts sure. from his book. I haven't read his book. Um, yeah, you definitely, on a complete side note, you definitely want to read his book. I mean, that mm -hmm. whether you come out disagree, agreeing or disagreeing, it's an excellent book and he brings up some really interesting stuff. I happen to agree with Bosserman, uh, Bosserman's conclusion, but um, you should read the book if you ever catch the time. It's a, a good book there. Um, let's see here. So um, again, Michael Faber says, Tyler's argument is basically assume Calvinism and of course declare uh, heretics. Now um, I could skip this over, but I, I actually want to come to your defense here. Um, if anyone knows Tyler and has listened to his debates and his discussions, it's just silly to say that he simply assumes Calvinism. Now you could disagree with Calvinism. You can, you can think that Tyler's defense of Calvinism is not good, but he doesn't simply assume it. He does go through great lengths in trying to defend it both scripturally and philosophically. Um, so I don't think that's the case at all. And um, I don't think we've done any name calling, just sitting here calling anyone heretics or anything like that, even if we believe a view is heretical. Uh, we tried to deal with the issues. Tyler jumped into the specific content. And I think that's um, this comment here is unwarranted. But, you know, I think we should have addressed that here. So um, yeah. and, is, and, that, is and, that all you do? You just assume Calvinism? Is that is that what you're doing? Obviously. I, I mean, I, I would just go back and, and and show the number of times where I've actually showed that my Calvinism is actually completely irrelevant to the objection that I'm making to Molinism or to open theism. Um, that, that it's actually my my understanding of uh, of, of classical theism um, that, that undergirds Orthodox Christianity mm -hmm. that grounds a lot of these objections. Uh, and and so I, 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 I mean, I can't think of an argument actually where I've, you know, I've done a reductio argument where I said, okay, let's assume their position is true mm -hmm. and show what follows. That's not assuming my position is the case. And and I've done, uh, you know, philosophical rejoinders that have nothing to do with Calvinism sure. and biblical rejoinders that have nothing to do with so I don't know where I would have assumed right. Calvinism. Now, so. even, even uh, I mean, 
I, I, it's comments like that just is, is interesting. You know, I, I'll drop it there. I don't want to get too much into it. But at any rate, so Beowulf uh, says, Molinism explains the crucifixion fully. Compatibilism does nothing to explain it. It just creates an illogical mess and makes God the author of sin. How would you respond? Yeah. To that? Um, I, I mean, I would, I would have to ask a bunch of more questions, right? Because sure. it says Molinism fully explains the crucifixion. Well, um, the problem is that I showed that it didn't. Right, because Molinism requires requires libertarian incompatibilism, as we see in Acts, the crucifixion was determined and free, um, and so it simply cannot be the case that any incompatibilist system can explain the crucifixion, Compa whereas compatibilism just is the position that determinism uh, and freedom, sufficient responsibility, are compatible, which we see in the crucifixion. So, and I'm not sure what you mean by explains it, right? It's so compatibilism isn't trying to explain it; it's not explaining why it happened. Sure. It's ju it's just giving an example where something is determined and free, sure. right? So um, so I'm not exactly sure that's the case. And the the makes God the author of sin. Um, I, I mean that that's your claim. I'm not sure how that would follow without begging the question of some type of incompatibilism. Because in order for you to say that God is the author of sin, you need to assume that if God determines something, it illegitimately makes him the cause of that thing, which just is the incompatibilist position, right? Mm -hmm. So so the objection, so if you're gonna say, okay, well, the author of sin objection is a valid objection against compatibilism, then what you're saying is, if I assume incompatibilism, then therefore compatibilism is false. Which I'm just saying, okay, well, that's just trivially true. If you assume the falsity of something, then it follows that it's false. But why should we believe? Why should we go along with the assumption of the falsity of the thing to begin with? So sure. um, I, I just don't find that. I, I, I don't. I don't know how that's a meaningful objection. Sure. All right. Um, uh, Quinn Soleil asks: uh, Does libertarian free will ultimately lead to impersonalism, which undermines the very nature of God's being and rule? Um, if I understand this question correctly. Um, Quinsole, correct us if I'm wrong. There's an objection to libertarianism that because it is causally indeterminate, it means that there's nothing actually even about the agent that determines the choice, right? So now it's the case that I'm not even causally determinate of my, uh, of my, uh, of my decisions, Right. So, so it's, so it, it's the, so you have this weird thing where it is the case that I'm the one choosing, but there's nothing about me that's determining what I choose. And so I'm choosing, but I'm not even determining my own choices. And so it actually makes, um, it, it makes it almost random or entirely arbitrary. It actually becomes very much like rolling a dice um, where nothing in the prior conditions, including myself, my desires, my thoughts, my beliefs, my context, Nothing determines what I choose. And so it just becomes opaque why I, it, again, on hard libertarianism, right? If you're, if you're like a source, source incompatibilist, you have some answers to this, right? But, but libertarianism, it's really hard to understand how it's not just reducible to kind of arbitrary rolls of the die um, because the, the prior causal conditions are indeterminate to the choices. Mm -hmm. But if I'm the prior causal condition, but I'm indeterminate, like th then it just means, does that make sense? Sure. Sure. I got you. I, th I think that's what he means, which means it undermines the very, the very nature. Um, and then if it undermines the very nature of, of God's rule, um, I don't know if this is where he's going about God's rule, 
um, my friend Jimmy Stevens makes this very interesting argument um, that basically is in the Bible, um, people are morally blameworthy and praiseworthy and do good or bad things because of the stuff that they are. So mm -hmm. people do wicked things because they are wicked, right? So your nature is the thing that determines the type of decisions that you make, sure. right? You will, you know, you, you'll, by, by their fruit, you'll know the tree, right? Yep. So, um, so Jimmy Stevens goes through and he says, okay, but if libertarian freedom is true and the causal condition is indeterminate with respect to it, it means that being wicked is causally indeterminate with choosing the wicked or the good, right? So it's no longer the case that the wicked is blameworthy for their wicked or good actions because their nature is not determinate of the type of things that they, uh, the types of choices that they make. So he makes this very interesting biblical kind of, the, the kind of the anthropology in, in the Bible that were presented where the type of tree determines the type of fruit and but if but if libertarianism is true, it seems to be that the type of true tree is indeterminate to the type yes. of fruit. So, all right, very good. Michael Faber asks another question. Um, this is with respect to your comments, um, something to the effect saying that open theism was um, heretical at, at some level. Um, so the question is, could Tyler tell us what ecumenical council open theism contradicts to make it a heresy? Uh, yeah, so uh, th this is just the mistaken view that in order to be a heresy, it has to be something within within the ecumenical council. I'm not sure that I that I necessarily agree with that. Uh, I think we can do if it's condemned at an ecumenical council, it's heresy, or if it contradicts the the universal testimony of the church. Sure. Right. And, and as I pointed out, everybody stands against open theists: mm -hmm. Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Arminians, <laughs> Calvinists, uh, Provisionists everybody disagrees with the open theist, right? Um, in, in very, very strong ways in saying that it's the wrong God, mm -hmm. right? So it's so there, there's kind of a trivial way where you could say, oh, well, ev everybody disagrees with Calvinists. That's what it means to be a non-Calvinist is that you're not a Calvinist, mm -hmm. okay? But not everybody disagrees with Calvinism and says, oh, well, Calvinism just is a different God. Right. Right. We disagree on certain biblical passages. We disagree on certain theological implications. Right. All and you do have some people who say that, but it, there, are, there are some. But right. but it's not it's not the universal testimony of the church. It's right. the universal testimony of the church that open theism is out of bounds mm -hmm. um, and, and that it is it, it is a denial of the uniform view of all of these different traditions um, that that, uh, that that God knows all things. Mm -hmm. Right. So. So, again, there are people, it, it is the case that everybody who's not a Calvinist is not a Calvinist. But guess what? The way that people are Calvinists is different, right? Arminians are not non-Calvinists for the same reason that Catholics are not non-Calvinists, right? So they all kind of disagree differently. There's not a universal united front against Calvinism for the same thing. Sure. Right? That that just is not the case when it comes to open theism. All right. This next question is um, from a former student of mine. It has nothing to do with the topic, but it might be a quick one you'd be able to address uh, sure. just so that I could. Uh, yeah. Okay. So David asked the question, can one use Satan's name in vain? For example, I say, damn Satan. <laughs> so instead of using God's name in vain, is it inappropriate to, to you know, someone use Satan's name in vain? Uh, I, I don't know because what well, my guess would be no, because normally when we think of using God's name in vain, we think that we're profaning something mm -hmm. that shouldn't be used that way. Mm -hmm. It's not clear that, that 
Satan's name shouldn't be used that way. Okay. So, um, I, I mean, so I don't if, know. If I, if I stub my toe, so if I stub my toe, it, there's nothing wrong with me saying, you know, devil damn. <laughs> I don't think, so. and, but, but I, but I would go back and say, well, I mean, his personal name. Well, okay. Caveat. I think our Satanology and demonology in, in evangelical Christianity way overdeveloped and way beyond what scriptures actually tell us. Okay. Um, but if you kind of go with the historical, you know, development of, of Satanology, well, I mean, Satan isn't his name. Lucifer would be his name. Um, maybe I don't, you know, but um, yeah. Because Satan is his office. That's the accuser. Sure, sure, sure. I got you. Uh, Tate says, where's William Lane Craig in this convo? Uh, I'd love to interview. I almost I almost had the opportunity to interview Dr. Craig. I had uh, Kevin Harris on uh, from Reasonable Faith who interviews Dr. Craig to talk about Dr. Craig's um, influence and contributions. And it was almost set up. But, you know, these these gentlemen are very difficult to find because they're very busy. So uh, maybe one day I'll be able to have the, the pleasure of interviewing uh, William Lane Craig. Uh, let's see here. Let's move down the list where you're doing a great job. We're by the, by the way, I do have a couple of articles again, not on the topic. I have a couple of articles where I show that uh, I, I took a, I took a cue from our friend, Tim Stratton. I said, I, I showed that um, William Lane Craig is a, is a mere presuppositionalist. <laughs> so. Okay. There you go. That's awesome. Uh, let's see here. Do, 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 do. Just trying to go through quickly here. Okay, let's. Uh, Michael fight. Michael Faber asks or makes a couple of comments here. Maybe you could address them here. And I, I tend to get this a lot um, when people disagree with the person I'm interviewing. Uh, the person you know calls the 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 person dishonest, a liar. Um, why can't we just say he's wrong? He's incorrect there. I mean, why it doesn't necessarily? I don't. I don't think Tyler is lying about anything, but. Uh, Michael Faber says Tyler is lying when he says that open theists don't have a hermeneutic. He is lying when he says that open theists say, uh, you know, God is a very good guesser. His whole argument is intellectually dishonest. How, how would you engage that a little bit? Yeah, well, a couple of things. I don't think, maybe I misspoke. I don't mean that they have no hermeneutic. I okay. believe what I said was that they have no consistent or no good hermeneutic. Yeah, I think that that's what you said. Yeah. Um, which, well, that's just true. I mean, I, I gave numerous examples of, mm -hmm. of that's the case. So again, uh, if you could argue back and you can, you know, convince me or you can convince others, or you can make a good case, then maybe I'm wrong, but that's not, again, that, that's not lying. Um, I'm also not lying when I say that God is a very good guesser. I actually got that from Boyd, uh, right? Bo I mean, Boyd and others are the ones that say God, God, it, it's a God who risks. God's the one who gambles. God, God's God, God is, he's making very, very, very good guesses. And yes, he wins at roulette a lot. Um, I got that from open theists. So, um, so yeah, th that's kind of, that's kind of like, uh, I, I, I don't know how it's intellectually dishonest for me to say that about open theism when I get that from open theists. So okay, maybe that wouldn't be how, how Mr. Faber would say it, but. Right. Okay. That's a good point here. Uh, Richard Suttles uh, says it's possible everything collapses because there are no logical ways to make all those qualities work. And I think he's, Referring to the various attributes you were speaking about before that are um, they seem to be denied on the yeah. open theist perspective. Yeah, here's the thing. Um, it I, I think that it is the case um, that every every view that we have is probably a little wrong. Um, I'm totally okay with that. 
right? I, I don't think that everything that, about Calvinism that, that I think is, is, is true is true. I, I'm going to get to heaven. I mean, this is why I like George Whitfield's statement uh, about, about, um, uh, about uh, Wesley, Wesley. Uh, right? Charles, Charles Wesley. I forget which Wesley brother. I think it's Charles Wesley. Um, and he said, you know, uh, no, I'm, I'm not going to see Wesley when I get to heaven. He's going to be so much closer to God than me. Right. So um, I, I, I'm not there imagining that my view, um, I, I understand that my view about the scriptures is still my view about the scriptures and I'm not that great. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wrong about all, all kinds of things. Um, now, in order for me to, to, to think that I'm wrong, someone should try to convince me that I'm wrong with good sure. arguments, right? Kind of a, a Luther, unless I'm, unless I'm convinced by the clear te teaching of scripture or sound reason, you know, I have no reason to think that I'm wrong when I've had these kind of well thought out positions. But I agree that there's a certain degree where, where everything has certain falsehoods. Where I disagree is where everything collapses. I don't think that's the case, right? It may be the case that that you know a bunch of views have barnacles, and we have to scrape off the barnacles, and we have to take off some dry rot, we have to do all that kind of stuff. But we still have a sail-worthy ship. Sure, right? That's not the case on open theism. On open theism, you literally are like taking off the the keel that keeps it all together and expecting the ship to float. Okay. Right. It's just not. It's just not the case. It's a. It's an entire. It. It, it just. It just completely makes the entire thing collapse. All right. Thank you for that. Uh, Beowulf uh, makes a good point here with respect to the question about uh, using the devil's name. Uh, he says, when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to mm. pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And so he says here um, in another comment, so I would refrain from saying, damn Satan, but rather the Lord rebuke you, which seemed more in line with kind of the biblical phraseology there. Uh, I that was interesting. So that's from the book of Jude. I'm not exactly sure that I that I would agree with how he's okay. interpreting that. Okay. But uh, this is one of those very 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 interesting. But I wrote a I, I wrote a book called uh, Canonical Exclusion or Embrace. Okay. Um, uh, not a book. Sorry, I, I wrote an article. And <clears throat> um, there are weird things that happen in the Book of Jude because something like half of the Book of Jude. It's not a long epistle. It's less than a. I mean, it's sure. 19, 19 verses or something like half of the verses are citations of non-biblical and extra canonical books. This is one of them, okay. right? So, so it's not entirely clear. I think I, I, th th let me just say Jude is one of the books that I just like put my hand on the Bible and I swear, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> okay. um, like you believe it's, you believe it's inspired. It's supposed to be there. You're just confused. I mean, I can, as to what's going well, on I can give you like a general, I, I can say, I generally know, What's happening? Like I know generally, sure. start to finish the argument that's being made. But if you get into the minutia of exactly what's happening in the way that Jude is citing this, you know, the Book of Enoch, for example, mm -hmm. which is largely there, there's a citation of the Book of Enoch that, that I that I deal with in the paper. Okay. I don't exactly know what to do with it um, because it, and it gets very very complicated because it seems to cite this extra canonical book. As if it's scripture, um, but it's clearly not scripture. It, it gets it gets wild. Well, could couldn't he be quoting something that's true in a non-canonical book, so that the non-canonical yep. book is non-canonical, but the non-canonical book gets something right, and so the, the yeah. author seems you know sees fit to mention it in his letter. I will send you my paper because it's once you start getting into the actually like the the graphic formulas and stuff. Okay. 
it gets so much more complex because a lot of people are like, oh, well, like, you know, Paul cites the Stoics and it's like, okay, but Paul doesn't actually use a graphe formula equating it with scripture. Jude does. So okay. uh, it gets, it get, it just gets, I, I, the end of my paper was, was kind of like, Hey, so that can't be true and that can't be true. But for the rest of these 15 options. Okay. I got gotcha. you. I got you. All right. Well, that was the the last uh, point there. Um, I think this was an excellent discussion. And and uh, again, for those who um, agree and find this information helpful, you know, use it for what it is and and uh, share it with others. If you disagree, you disagree. That that's just the nature of, of the beast. You know, we don't we don't hate you. We disagree uh, with your disagreement. <laughs> that's okay. It's normal. Um, but um, I do encourage folks, uh, regardless of how strongly you feel um, against. Um, open theisms more specifically, more seriously, and uh, Molinism in a less serious sense. I, I think Molinism is not as problematic as, as open theism, of course. That's, that's um, always be sure, and I say this in, in every show, if you're going to have disagreements, okay, you need to do it in a way that is itself consistent with scripture, right? And so we want to show gentleness, love, and respect to those with whom we disagree. And you know, please don't message me about, well, Jesus tipped the, you know, tossed over the, uh, the, the money changers tables. Like stop using that as an example to be jerks to other people. Okay. That Wait, had a specific can I use the example where Paul told the Judaizers to go and circumcise themselves? Yes. But, but, yes. but you see, yeah, there you go. But, but you see, um, a lot of what we do is, you know, people in general, they're not doing it in a way that is in line with, with, those biblical um, guidelines. So I do encourage people, if you want to make a point and support your position, you'll go much further if you respect the other person in the midst of your disagreement. I think that opens up lines of communications and that's an important. Um, if Cameron um, uh, uh, happens to watch this, I have no idea if he ever watches anything on this show, but um, um, I'm sure he's familiar with these various points. And so um, I do just want to uh, to let him know that um, we, at least I've, I've been, and I'm sure you have been greatly blessed by his content. And, and we do know how theology and philosophy works. For a lot of us, it's a journey. We're, we're working through difficult concepts. Um, and, and I don't say this condescendingly and I don't say this as though I am, you know, the best at this, but I want to encourage Cameron that, um, you need to be immersed in scripture. The philosophy is important. We all do it. We're all trying to make sense out of things, but we want to be grounded in the word of God. And, and me personally, when I read the word of God, the God of open theism is not what emerges. And that, I, I suppose that's the reason why it's, it's so vigorously, um, opposed by the majority of, of Christendom. So as you, as you're struggling through those ideas, you know, really, really take into consideration, um, you know, what the Bible says and, and, and consider what the church has said, uh, throughout the past with respect to this, this topic or related issues. So, um, I'll be praying for you and, um, you know, I really appreciate what you're doing and, and hopefully one day I'll get Cameron on here. Um, I'd love to get Cameron on here just to talk about some general topic and maybe, um, share a little bit more of his thoughts on, on, you know, what he's grappling with and things like that. So we'll see, but anyway, was there anything you'd like to say before we close off this episode, Tyler? No, I think you covered, covered all of it. All right. Well, real quick, I um, just want to remind people, remember June 1st is when our Precept University starts our, um, our online course. And so if folks are interested in signing up, um, you still have time to do that. And there's still space uh, for sign up. So other than that, um, please like the videos, share, subscribe if you haven't already. And uh, thank you so much uh, for being respectful in the comments. And, and thank you for listening in. Uh, that's all for this episode. Take care. God bless. Bye-bye.
Thank you very much for listening to Revealed Apologetics. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer um, on one of our podcast episodes, please feel free to send in your question uh, at revealedapologetics at gmail.com. Thank you.